And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, folks, here we go. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, let me let me start off here just just for a second with some some news that broke over the weekend, and I'm not sure what to think about this. Uh, Jay at Sidetrack has been reporting that uh, he's heard from people involved in the process that Amazon has been taking pitches for a new Stargate franchise, and uh, they took a pitch from Bad Robot. I'm not sure that that's a very good idea. Welcome, everybody. We are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hunt. I'm the editor here at Sci-Fi for Me. And uh, if you are with us uh, live, I know we're a little bit late. Stone, Martin, Weasels, and whatnot. We've got some. We got some of that going on. But uh, if you are listening to us as a podcast, we are available in a number of different player platforms. So good to have you with us as well. And you can always join us on the live video. We are right now broadcasting to Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. Hopefully, at some point, we'll be broadcasting to Rumble as well. And uh, get that uh, get that going. And in the meantime, uh, the live chat is open. You can always leave us a comment, send us an email, live from the bunker at sci fi for mecom I do read every single one of them, even if it's critical. If it's a critique, that's fine. All right. Speaking of Stone Martin Weasels, uh, we had a little bit of that uh, this morning. There was a question of whether or not uh, we were going to get our guest, and we did manage to get our guest. And let me uh, let me put. Wait a minute. How did I do that? Hold on. That's very strange. There we go. No, this one. There it is. Bruce McAllister is here with us today, talking about his new anthology. Uh, which came out, I believe, in June. It's called Stealing God and Other Stories. It's a collection of short stories that have been published over the years, and they are now in this new collection that's just out. Bruce, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, and <laughs> apologies again. I, I'm, I'm one of those people who loves to be on time, so, of course, you know, Murphy's Law says my computer will have collapsed 20 <laughs> minutes ago, and it's taken... 20 minutes to get it up and running again. Yeah, that's that's how it works. We so have, anyway, my apologies. I won't give you any more details than that. So no, that's fine. We are. Thank you for accepting me after 10 o'clock. No, really not a problem. Not a problem. We're glad to have you here. And, and believe me, I can completely sympathize. I've got three dead towers. I've got a couple of dead hard drives. I've got a laptop that's on its last leg. I, I totally get it. We have technology issues here sometimes and. Well, there's new research showing. There is actually new research showing that that on the uh, digital electronic side, things are sensitive enough that we can affect them. Really, so our psyches can affect them. Okay, not surprising. I'm going to have to start thinking good thoughts to my to my machines yes. here. Then talk, talk to your plants and to your computer. <laughs> All right, please work. Please work. Please work. Please, All right, please. I love you. I love you. <laughs> All right, Bruce McAllister is an author. He's been nominated for various different awards, including the uh, the Hugo, the Nebula, the Locus. He is also a writing consultant. He's been published in a number of different periodicals, newspapers, magazines, and such on a variety of topics, not just science fiction fantasy 
Uh, and this this collection here, Stealing God and Other Stories, is uh, is a mix of a lot of different genres, not just one particular, hey, these are all horror stories or science fiction stories. So um, so let's start there with uh, how this particular collection came about. What was the impetus to put this one together? I'm mainly a short story writer and uh, had to face that some decades ago. I have I've published three novels, but you, you know whether you, you're a short story writer at heart or not. I love the form. I love being able, in the same amount of time, I'm a slow writer, that it would take me to, to produce a novel to be able to explore visions, voices, worlds, characters, all sorts of things, so many more in um, <clears throat> the equivalent number of short stories as with a novel. So I just like it. It's in me. I'm you know, passionate about it and always will be. <clears throat> it's hard, as you might imagine, making a career as a short story writer if you're not, you know, let's say Ray Bradbury, Howard Waldrop, Harlan Ellison, right. but it's it's very satisfying. So this collection, Stealing God and Other Stories, is, um, according to my <clears throat> editor at Eon Press, who's an amazing editor, um, my best short stories from the, the new millennium. So it's science, as you say, it's science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Um, I kind of have been in recent years writing writing all three genre. Uh, they're pretty character oriented and but travel to a lot of different places. It's fun to do that. Um, so it was time, according to my editor, to come out with a new short story collection. My last one was in, uh, I can't remember, 2007. And those were all all science fiction stories. It was a very different kind of collection. And um, Paul Filippo was good enough to write an introduction to this one. He's amazing. And um, my editors in the field wrote some endorsements. And we were lucky enough to get cover art by uh, Dominic Harmon, who's really an amazing artist, award-winning fantasy science fiction artist. So that's how it came about. And I'm happy with it because um, I, I do want to believe it's the, my best over the past 20 year, 22 years. Now you mentioned you mentioned the artwork. I'm looking at this, and I, and I see the I see this, and I read the description that uh, is out there about the collection. Basically, these stories talk about what it is to be human, and and I'm I'm as I'm going through these stories, I'm reading not necessarily what it is to be human from a standpoint of human versus alien, but human yeah. in the sense of the emotional capacity that we have, the, the, the three-dimensional, you know. That's very, very perceptive because, yes, it, it, what it means to be human, as we know, is undergoing changes, you know, whether it's the, the metaverse or what is the nature of humanity. So you're right. It is about the emotional. That's very, very insightful. Uh, it's not simply alien versus human beings. And, um, and that's what's fun about it. In other words, when we face the alien, do we become a little bit more alien in terms of traditional definitions, or do we insist on being the humanity we've always been? And evolution, of course, is hard to beat. Uh, the amazing thing was 20, 30,000 years ago, our brains were the same, meaning you, you can go up to uh, an early man site 
in the desert here and you can look down and look at the artifacts and let's say they're 20, 30,000 years old, you can figure out exactly what they were doing. Our yeah. brains haven't changed. So the chances of that changing in a couple of hundred years, probably not great. Um, anyway. Well, and, and the, the approach that you've got, I imagine, is impacted by uh, your, uh, your connection to anthropology. Your mother was an anthropologist. You, you yeah. studied anthropology among a number of other topics. I mean, I'm looking at, I'm looking at all of this on your, on your website talking about your interests I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot here. Cultural anthropology, popular culture, early yeah. man archaeology, the Vietnam War, U.S. foreign policy, oceanography. I mean, this is a, this is a real mixed bag here. Well, live live long enough, and you, you you develop a lot of different interests. A lot of those are from from my family. My dad was a career uh, naval officer, but more of an inventor than a Cold War warrior, and he was an oceanographer, electronics, classified anti-submarine warfare, and our mother, who was probably part either Chicksaw or, anyway, Native American, uh, was a cultural anthropologist, Stanford, and uh, specializing in Native American studies and in early man uh, um, archaeology. And, and anthropology. So a lot of those interests come from that, but some are just, you know, interests that I've developed now, over the years. How, how important is it, or is it, to include those kind of things in the, in the story chart? Because, you know, some people, they take, they take themselves, you know, the, the, the self-insert, as it were. I'm going to put myself in this story. And you've got various characters and situations that kind of that kind of connects to all of these so how much of bruce McAllister is in your well, that's, protagonist? That's, that's a great question and the writers talk about that all the time if you ask a fantasy or science fiction writer at least of a certain age meaning to live long enough that same question it'll be well consciously there's autobiography at times in, in my fiction, but unconsciously, it's incredibly autobiographical. In fact, fantasy writer, well-known one, once said to me, um, it's all autobiographical metaphor. In other words, even if it's not conscious or direct, it's autobiographical. On my first novel, which <laughs> try to imagine, a stream of consciousness owed basically to a far future mer culture, you know, mer, mer man, mer, mer woman culture, under the threat of reptile invaders on a distant planet in the distant future. Two years after I published it, I went, oh my God, those are the members of my family. <laughs> and, and it's just, we, we have to write. Probably because our feelings are most intense about the lives we've lived. And I think if you talk to Dean Koontz, Stephen King, um, write major writers in the field, they would, would say that. Now, if they're overtly trying to engage the issues of our time, they may not say that, and it may be less true. But in my case, um, I have to I start a story with intense, intense feelings, and those often come from the life I've lived. 
So let me let me ask you this because you now now you've kicked open that door about addressing <laughs> addressing modern times and 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 what's going on in your story Stealing God. I was going to ask you this after the break, but I'm going to ask you this now. There is a line uh, in this story: "Don't get too popular if you're singing a song that scares the powerful." Yeah. And that strikes me as a very profound thought right in the middle of all of this story that's going on. And I, you look at things that are going on in, you know, current times, you know, you've got Kanye and Alex Jones and, and you know, Gina Carano and any, anybody that stands up and asks questions about anything that's going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I... Being being a being a student of anthropology, and I imagine you've probably been taking a look around at all of this stuff, and and people are running around like chickens with their heads cut off. What's the what's the end point of where we are culturally right now? Where do you see us going five well, years from now? You know, cancel culture and and you know the culture war as people talk about it. Is either it is, the most comforting or the most disturbing truth is. Everything we're seeing today goes all the way back to the founding of the country and before. Uh, it's amazing. In other words, in, in anthropology, you talk about cultural myths. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean they're not true. It just means they're stories that a people tell themselves to know who they are, where they're going, and what they mean in the universe. If you go back to our original, our original um, cultural myths, cultural stories, Everything we're seeing today is there on both sides, both parties, absolutely everything. Right. Same with the Vietnam War. Vietnam War was the same mythic story being told in two different ways, and that split the nation. So that's either comforting or not comforting, because it says that we're kind of inevitably doomed to be what those original stories were. And that's why experts today say, don't look at Sweden to figure out our problems. Every first world country is different. It's yeah. like an individual. So um, things are pretty extreme. I mean, the cancel culture, when I first started noticing that on some of my published stories, and the first first one was one that LeVar Burton, the, you know, the actor, the, right. the uh, reading rainbow guy, so wonderful, um, gave a lot of exposure to a story of mine. And <laughs> The posted the posted comments from from readers were, "This is a pro life story." What? <laughs> this is China bashing. What? Yeah. In other words, people are reading it simply to get affirmed who they are or who they don't want to be. And it's a funny. It's not a literature. It's not a way of engaging literature that I grew up with. But it's the way it is. Um, I'm hoping I'll be alive. And it's going to take some years, if not decades, to to be around for when the narrative changes, or actually the the narrative becomes more more um, what should we say more uh, more nuanced. Right. For example, the narrative right now does not include marginalization of white people within the white privileged culture. Something like that is not discussed but what's interesting as the as the son of a culture a behavioral scientist what i find fascinating is all the movements that we see today are about the same thing 
And that's affirmation of the individual, of lived life. And even if it takes extreme, absurd, and annoying forms sometimes, <laughs> like that's it does. because, as we know, zealots don't have zealots don't have a sense of humor, ever. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's inevitable, and it's inevitable given our stories. But it's also inevitable for uh, democracy. So we'll see. And again, I I am the least political person on the face of the earth son of a behavioral scientist and an apolitical Navy officer. So, Well, let me ask you this, though, because a lot of the criticism of, uh, of current you know, literature, comic books, video games, all these things, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of focus on identitarian representation, all of these things, to the point where it's elevated be, beyond, above and beyond the the need for a story you know it's like we're all focused on you know the identity of the characters the identity of the writer the identity of the publishers all these things rather than looking at the quality of the craft of the story does it tell a good story does it entertain all that that's an interesting point yeah do do, do you find in in and from an anthropological standpoint is this cyclical because I don't recall, I, I'm only 52, so I've got a limited experience here, but I don't recall in my study of history this kind of intense division with regard to anything like this. Yeah, there have been, there have been the racial tensions, of course, in that, and you had the women's <clears throat> lib movement and, and that sort of thing, but everything now is tied to some sort of an identity or an ideological position that, like you say, there's no nuance anymore. There's just no, this there, one, there this isn't, one and thing. You're, you're right. There isn't, and that is because probably what you're saying, which is that identity is most important today. In anthropology, at least traditional anthropology, and anthropology itself under, is undergoing tremendous change, it's a study of values. Most political, most behavioral sciences today have become political science fields, the study of power. And racism can be seen really as a matter of power mm-hmm. and of classism, because you can go to a country where there, there are disenfranchised, marginalized, oppressed people, and the skin color is no different. Right. For them, And so at some point, first of all, the behavioral sciences shouldn't all become a study of power, but that is what's happened for, we'll call it activist reasons, meaning reasons that have to do with power and those who are marginalized and oppressed, but that's not good for science necessarily. And uh, so it's a good idea. In some of my fiction, in some, in some of the short stories, I start with the human, but I get into some things like that. In other words, the putting on a pedestal, pristine environments and and um, uh, invasive species are bad, things like this, this kind of either or thinking we have. I, I sneak in some things through the human heart if I can yeah. that you might say were political, but they're not. They're an attempt to get that more nuanced dialogue going. Well, and I think also there's some there's some distinction to be made between having some sort of a 
a political diatribe, you know, here is here is my creed as as the top layer of the story and and putting something in the subtext that if mm-hmm. you want to see it, it's there. If you don't want to see it, you can still read the story and, and come out and say, hey, that well, was a good story that's, or not. That is another, that's actually another matter. Most fiction writers, at least the ones I know, and I've known a lot in all these decades, they view it a little differently. In other words, when you create a character, you can give that character, if it is true to that character, whatever politics you want, whatever conclusions, and in fact, ambiguities. I mean, you can do tremendous things. In other words, a character who believes in that, that wants to believe that invasive species are bad and at the same time isn't sure. Well, that's not a political statement that's right. coming from the character. So in one sense, as fiction writers, we're safe. <laughs> in other <laughs> words, we're simply, we're simply, to, I, my second novel, Dream Baby, was uh, an ESP in war novel. I spent 15 years researching it, interviewing 200 veterans of three wars who have felt they'd had paranormal experiences in war that had kept them alive. I was a fiction writer. In other words, I didn't have to, I came away believing it mm-hmm. after 15 years. You either know or you don't know. Right. Uh, but for the sake of the novel, that was what it was, meaning there was an ESP element to the novel. So do you find, uh, as you're writing things, are, are you now more sensitive to that aspect of storytelling than in the past, or does it matter to you? Do you, do you let that impact how you tell a story? Let what impact? I'm well, as far as like, as far as like, how will the, how will this be viewed? Because you, know, you talked about the comments that that were on your interview it, with Lamar it's, it's, it, it, I was at first. I mean, a couple of years ago, it was like, oh my god, what can I? I can't, <laughs> can't write anything without being concerned. Right. And in fact, stealing God's an interesting story. It appeared in an Irish magazine, a magazine that published by the Irish publisher that published the collection and I'm waiting to I'm waiting for certain responses to the story because it is a perfect lightning rod for certain things going on now it is completely autobiographical except for the supernatural character of the dolls and the mother's death Right. But when I say otherwise autobiographical, most people of a certain sensibility would charge it with cultural appropriation. There's none. You see what I'm saying? There's right. none in right. it. You can't have something autobiographical and have it cultural appropriation. That's lived life. So, yeah, I am. I'm a little more. Sometimes I take it more seriously than some writers do. Some many writers I know just say, "Oh, for Pete's sake, don't even go there. Don't <laughs> even think in those terms." Yeah. But weird things start to happen. I found that certain editors are very, very sensitive about why I, as a white male, older white male, would write if I'm writing about certain material and characters. Yeah. And some are less so as long as the story's compassionate and as long as it's affirming others. Uh, I wrote a story a while back, and it was just about a boy, a sensitive boy, 
um, who was effeminate in certain ways, and it certainly was viewed by an older in an older generation as effeminate. By the end of the story, he realizes that he's probably the incarnation of a of a witch on an island in the Mediterranean. All this time he's been because he has this ability to make things out of clay creatures and bring them to life. Mm-hmm. And the editor who accepted it said, well, this is a trans story. And I went, what? In other words, it was a trans story. Right. So I wrote the story, I'm not trans, and here was an editor who found it good because it was a trans story. Right. They saw the metaphor so, even if it wasn't there. Exactly. Yeah. And so what I think is happening is writers will continue to write and there will be a dialogue between what they're writing and the social sensitivities where we are. And there are magazines now, I don't know if you've seen them, but magazines in the science fiction fantasy field that have a long list of trigger, possible triggers, including classism. Well, if you're going to do classism, you might as well do another 50 possible triggers. Right. And they want to know lots about you and possible triggers. And then there are magazines that don't do that at all. So the, the field is, I love the field because, well, the wonderful thing about the field is it's pretty extreme in terms of its, I'm not going to use the W word there, I'm going to, in terms of its social sensitivities, all right? <laughs> well, in the beginning, it was for outsiders. Yeah. So it's not surprising that there would be this focus on outsiders, right? The marginalized, because it was outsiders and the marginalized in one sense who created American science fiction. The son, basically the sons of immigrants. Yeah. So anyway, it's a good field to be in. It's also very, very responsive and very talky. In other words, if you publish something, someone's liable to say something about it, and you get feedback. Literary fiction, which I do publish also, ah, dead silence. Nothing. Nothing out there. Well, and and that's a good place to pick up because I want to ask you about the the recent stuff that came out in the Random House thing. Uh, We're going to take a real quick break so I can give Google a spot to interrupt us. When we get back, we'll keep talking to Bruce McAllister right on the other side of this. Don't go anywhere. Stand by. Live from the bunker. The radio show that's almost as good as bacon. The concept of flying cars uh-huh. is just a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah. It is a disastrous idea. People can't drive on a level, flat surface, yeah. let alone, you know, it's, uh, trust me, this is one of those things where you want con to be thinking two-dimensionally the h2o podcast monday night at eight only on sci-fi for me tv good morning multiverse saturday morning at 11 10 central only on sci-fi for me tv Back live from the bunker, Jason Hunt here, along with my guest, Bruce McAllister. There, there is uh, one of the original Lego minifigure packs. <laughs> that's not the uh, that's not the reissue, folks. That's the that's the vintage kit right there. It's missing a few parts. 
Bruce McAllister is our guest today. We are talking about his new book, uh, his, his anthology. It is called Stealing God and Other Stories. It is a collection of short stories, and there's a there's a pretty broad mix here: vampires and time travel, and and uh, and Native American stuff. I mean, there's all sorts of things all over the place. And you mentioned you mentioned the uh, the back and forth and the discussion and and the feedback that you get when you're doing genre work as opposed to literary work. Mm-hmm. And it recently came out. Uh, in the because there was the 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 possible merge merger yes. of Random House and I believe Simon and Schuster and and it got shut down. But in in the midst of all of that, it came up that a lot of these novels that are published in by traditional publishing houses are only selling a few dozen copies. That's right. And everybody in the indie scene sat there and suddenly went. Oh, I'm doing better than I thought, you know, because yes. now, you know, sure. I, I sell 15 copies. I'm not any different from this New York Times bestseller l- title over here on, on Random House. They don't know. They, they're Well, I'm sure that some actuarial CPA types, you know, do understand. But it is really hard to grasp how in a nation of 300 million people, many of whom are readers of fiction, you can sell let's say a random house novel for you know, so li- so few copies yeah. it's just stunning and that it, it hasn't changed in fact it hasn't changed in a, in decades how many can be sold which means then that sales to hollywood and other other right foreign rights all those things become more important to them but what that means is the indie indie world is really important and at the same time if a new writer tries to land an agent that agent is not going to know the indie world cannot afford to because the advances don't exist right now have you done any uh, in in terms of self-publishing you've got the crowdfunding model out there with kickstarter and indiegogo now you got substack you got patreon yeah um zoop i think is another one for for comics uh you've got webtoon you've got a lot of these different publishing platforms and you know you talk about the the cancel culture a lot of these are being impacted by that as well i mean we're seeing now indiegogo a lot of comics projects that are associated with the Comicscape movement are getting suppressed in search. Oh, yes, but have you have you delved into uh, indie publishing at all for any of your work? You know, self publishing. Yeah, and I also have to I have to be aware of it um, for my clients, the coaching and publishing consultant clients. So I'm, I'm aware of it. My Vietnam ESP and War Vietnam novel, which came out in um, 80, 19... 1990, 89, something like that. I brought back in 2010 through CreateSpace slash Kindle. And it's great. I'm glad I did. So, uh, so I know that. And my son and I did a, a short film adaptation of a short story of mine called Moving On. And we did a Kickstarter campaign. And a lot, you can imagine, a lot of writer friends and my clients do self-publishing and a lot of it's tricky um very tricky you know publishers that are called hybrids can run from really good deals meaning they do beautiful books through uh, semi-ethical semi-ethical scale <laughs> uh, in other words not illegal but i have to steer them away from it and there are ways yeah. you can tell 
See, I remember, so I remember the days. All those Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I remember the days when you had the vanity press. You know, oh, yes. Pay us, oh, yeah. pay us $500, pay us $1,000, we'll publish your book. And, and, and uh, I think Writer Beware probably grew out of that. Um, in well, what's of, interesting is there were three main ones, Durant's Vantage, and I can't remember the other one. And if their name was on your book, no reviewer would touch it. So yeah. you had thrown hundreds and thousands of dollars away. There are still ones like that. Uh, it, it's it, it, it anyone who any writer anyway who subscribes to Publishers Weekly will be a little astonished by the full page ads from the self publishers that don't bother copy editing anything, and you wonder how can they sleep at night. Well, the answer is the marketing people at PW are not the same as the editorial, right? And that's been the case for since the beginning of time. I remember, so, I remember getting a book uh, here for review that had almost no punctuation at all. I mean, yeah. it was just gone. There's not not even not not even a period at the end of the sentence. I mean, the whole thing was just no punctuation anywhere. And, and also was, bad cover oh, art and all yeah. those things that you that somebody's not protecting those people from some people won't listen it's like well i like it without punctuation yeah <laughs> keep it that way so the the other the other part is we talk about the cancel culture on the other side of this i mean you have you know back in back in 2015 2016 you had the sad puppy stuff i mentioned comics gate we, we've talked about you know, there's yeah. there's been gamergate all the way back and and gamergate gets blamed for everything now but there's this movement now among a certain group of authors. They're calling it a superversive movement. They're basically taking, you know, it's time to move past this nihilistic doom and gloom. Everything's dark and gritty. Let's start writing some stories that actually have heroes and villains and the heroes wear white hats and the villains wear black hats and there's hope at the end of the story and all that. Is that something that, I mean, is there is there there's value to that, I guess, right? They say they say that the real curse on human beings is either or thinking, which I do subscribe to, and and in the work that I do, my day job, the the coaching and the consulting, is yes. So I do lots of interventions on either or thinking. <laughs> if the hero patterns, and that means Lord Raglan and Joseph Campbell are wet-wired into us and have been there for millions of years, and there are certain characteristics of those patterns, like there is a hero. Well, a hero implies that that there may be followers. Mm. Well, that's not very democratic. You see what I say? Yeah. Well, that's, but that's in the nature of the hero patterns, and the hero patterns, when Hollywood says it's tired of... of hero patterns and is going to do anti-heroes, almost all the anti-heroes are heroic. They fit the hero pattern. Right. And so that's in us to do. And it's actually, some people say it's a very spiritual pattern. And it's spiritual for a couple of reasons. Um, and that doesn't mean religious, just means transcendental something, alluding to something right. greater than what we are. So you can't have either or thinking about it. In other words, it's, it, for example, is it Pullman, who's the pretty angry um, atheist? Well, he's an a he may be an atheist up here, but mm -hmm. 
but he's using the hero patterns to a T. <laughs> and if you think about it, wait, he's still a spiritual person, yeah. even if he's angry at God and organized religion. You know, I wonder. I wonder if some of that comes down to, and this, and this maybe is an is more of a of a theological question as opposed to anthropological. But it seems like we're made to believe in something, and. Whether that's, you know, if, if you believe in God, you believe in Buddha, you believe in Allah or whatever, um, if that's not there, then you believe in something else. You believe in, you know, there's a lot of people that want you to believe the in the government, believe in science, yeah, believe, exactly. in, believe in oh, money that's or a whatever. Good point. Are, are, we, are we hardwired? Well, here's the, in, here's the interesting belief? thing. Two, two basic ways you can view that. One is we are we are designed that way, whatever that means, meaning we are that way because there is indeed something mm -hmm. beyond what we know. And as Einstein said, I mean, as Einstein, he says, you can't be a good scientist without at some point in your life starting to feel cosmic religious feeling. He didn't, he meant a spiritual uh, something beyond. It's either that or it's the Marks uh, opiate of the masses. There are only two ways, but <laughs> right. perfect, perfect anecdote. There's that Carl word. Jung, remember Carl Jung yep. and Freud. Carl Jung, who came up with the word synchronicity because he was not going to touch something else with that notion, anything that felt spiritual. So he stopped at, spirit, at synchronicity. He was at a God gene conference. And the God gene conference was, is there a gene in us that makes us believe in, in a God? Right. And a guy walks up to him really arrogantly and says, well, don't you think that it's um, we have a uh, we are gen genetically predisposed to believing in some gods. Long pause. Carl Jung said, yes. And if I were God, I would design it that way. <laughs> in other words, the either or stop right. with the either or. Right. So and I remember even at 10 feeling I couldn't, you know, I grew up in a lot of non-fundamentalist pro Protestant churches, like seven of them. Good yeah. Lord, how could I ever, you know, be one thing? <laughs> and I remember thinking even at 10, it was like, well, wait, I mean, what's wrong with evolution and God? I mean, isn't that how God would have worked? I mean, the either-or curse on human beings is, is pathetic. Right. Now, uh, you mentioned in the at the beginning of the hour, you mentioned Harlan Ellison, you mentioned uh, Ray Bradbury. Uh, and your, Howard your, Walter. Yeah, and, and your, your uh, realization that you're a short story writer more than anything else. <laughs> yeah. And the short story seems to wax and wane a little bit. It, it, I've seen more collections lately than I have in the past. It almost seems like there's there's a little bit of a resurgence coming. Um, Robert Greenberger and the guys over at Crazy Ant <coughs> Press have published a number of anthologies now. Uh, their are thrilling adventure yarn collections. I've started to see more in the way of short stories have have you in your in your work with other authors and and conversations with other people are you seeing more of an interest coming back in in short fiction you're actually right it comes and goes now here's if there's a market for short stories and there's not a great market in fantasy and science fiction but it's better than mysteries 
So it, as long as there's a place for short stories to be published, there will be short stories because authors of novels often stop in despair and write a short story, meaning often those same novelists. Also, you know, you've seen Kickstarter campaigns for film versions of short stories by Brandon Sanderson, meaning right. the short form will exist. It's also peculiarly American. We supposedly, Americans invented the form. Isn't that interesting? Not ah. the fable, but the the short story. Right. So there are reasons, I think, for American writers to to continue to produce it. But the fact is, most readers would rather read novels than short stories. When that LeVar Burton promoted short story of mine appeared, it got on Goodreads, I think, close to 2,000 responses or something like that and it was interesting split right down the middle amazing what was accomplished in so few words and this was not enough right <laughs> right <laughs> why didn't it continue so there's you're always going to have that split you know the shorts that that means that that second half second 50 percent they were novel readers yeah well, and I think there's also a, a, a place you you can have short stories as a test bed for technique. I want to try something out, see if it works. Yes. I want to do something new, but, you know, let, let's, you know, kind of dip my toes in and see if I can actually do this and pull it off before I try it in a full-blown novel. Well, but, and there's, you're right, entirely right, but the other exists. You can't try it. You can't do it in a novel. Experimental writing, both in literary fiction and in fantasy and science fiction, have has disappeared. Is fiction it, today is literal and linear, but in the short story form, you can experiment. So you're entirely right. That's a place where you still can do that. So which of these, which of these stories, is your most experimental? Would you say out of this out of this set? <sighs> None of them really are. Let me think. Um, none really. None of them are experimental compared to what I've done in the past. It was right. experimental or what people would view like science fiction, new new wave, or experimental literary fiction. Um, most, most of it's traditional storytelling of one kind or another. Um, did you find something experimental? I bet you didn't. I, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't run across anything that just really stands out. No, um, none of it's not. No, none of the stories really are. Um, now, do you have a favorite out of this group? Is there? What, good I know question. they're all they're all your babies, but you know. I know. There's one about a boy who, at night, you know, he's in a loving, loving household, loving family. At night, he has a vast seashell collection. And at night, he goes to the kingdom of the ancient sea and actually is a fighter. And the seashells, the queen conch, is being threatened by the horse conch's minions. And in other words, very, it's kind of like historical fiction. The Tudors meet seashells in a young boy's <laughs> life. That one, because it's very autobiographical. I had a strange childhood, as you might imagine, you know, a, a a collection of a thousand seashells all neatly labeled when I was 10, that kind of oh, thing. Um, that's a favorite, but also the, the uh, and I'm not a Catholic, again, a Cat Judeo-Christian iconography is there for other reasons. A story called Blue Fire is a story of the child Pope Bonifacio who meets the youngest or a very young vampire 
and um, in uh, basically St. Peter's throne in the Vatican. So we're talking, but the background for that is this entire alternate history of the drinkers of blood having taken the Vatican and all that. That's another favorite, um, probably the title story because it's so autobiographical. Sure. And anyway, it's hard to choose because the tonal range is, you know, but those those are close to me in one way or the other. So what do you have coming up next? What's uh, what's on your what's I need your to document? do more more writing. I've been uh, you know promoting the book and I've been doing other things. Um, one of the it's a long story, but the Vietnam novel. I have learned more from not having it optioned or produced in Hollywood than I probably would have learned if that had happened. So it came out in in 1980, excuse me, in 1990. So for 30 years, it has been nibbles and almost full engagement. So we're talking Madonna, Helen Hunt, Ron Howard, Ridley Scott, on and on, 30 years of it. Each one of them with a different version of the novel in mind, which is so Hollywood. Well, my son and I and two of his friends, really magical folk, are have created a production company called Dream Baby LLC, and the novel has morphed into a miniseries. So we're about to approach, probably in January since, as one VP put it, it's a bloodbath now at the streamers. <laughs> so stay away until January or February. But... Um, we're optimistic about that, and it would be fun to, to... I've always had kind of one toe, and I do a lot of consulting and screenwriting and other things related to Hollywood industry. Um, it would be fun to have that go, have that fly. Do, do you ever set... And, and this, is, this is a challenge for me, because of what I do here, we cover all of this in the entertainment and whatnot. It's very, yeah. it's very yeah, much a challenge... All to just sit and watch something and enjoy it for what it is. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly it picking things apart. Do you, do you run into that? I mean, because you're a writer. Oh, absolutely impossible. Own. I will stop. I will stop watching something. And these are things that Rotten Tomatoes, which is increasingly <laughs> unreliable as far as I can tell, yeah. um, has, has uh, rated as rank percentage wise as good. If it is, it's a weird thing, and a lot of writers do this. As soon as I encounter inauthenticity, meaning things where, that are inauthentic, right. let's say something in the Durrells on Corfu, something as simple as you can't eat olives directly from the tree. You've got to <laughs> do something to them. Well, the writers didn't know that or didn't care. It's okay unless making authentic would have made it a better story. Does that make yeah. sense? Sure. Right. sure. And the other is, if I can rewrite the script, and that sounds vain and arrogant as hell, if I can actually rewrite the teleplay or the, the script as I'm watching it and make it better, and at this point in my life, I, I, I'm taught screenwriting, uh -huh. I know whether it's better or not. Yeah. I will stop watching it. And there's a weird thing, as you've probably noticed yourself in TV, which is you can have a good start to a TV series, but then things may plateau and collapse. <laughs> and sometimes 
sometimes it's a function of what writers have come in. They've come in with less emotional investment. The thing is continuing and all that. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 yes, I, I know. In one sense, I know too much, and that's both a curse and a blessing. Yeah. But it usually tells me I should be writing instead of watching the mediocre TV series. That there, makes it. Well, and there's, and there's talk, and I've run across this in a couple of different places, the comment that most— the the current generation and and not necessarily from an age but from a standpoint of the people that are doing it now mm-hmm. have a tendency to they lack a familiarity with classic literature the yes, the, 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 the current the current crop they've grown up on TV Star Trek you know Star Wars movies and they're not informed in the literary works, you know, they, they haven't read The Count of Monte Cristo or or Moby Dick or The Three Musketeers or or uh, um, Paradise Lost or any of any of the classics. And it shows in their storytelling because their storytelling becomes so derivative. Yes, I, I, I agree on that. And there's no... Some people would react to that as being, oh, that's just a canonical response and that's literature and it's old white guys in, you know, whatever, Europe (laughs) or something like that. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is there's something in the classics about storytelling, structure, humanity, that is good to not forget. And sometimes it's in hero patterns. Some, Hollywood is pretty good at hero patterns, actually. It's surprisingly good at times, anyway. But basically, you're so right. Basic storytelling, they can just, like, yeah, we're going to add a character. We're going to have someone not get along with someone else simply for the sake of an episode. And it's like, wow, we've lost the story here, yeah. very definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, And again, I live long enough that I an outsider among outsiders probably, but <laughs> I noticed what you're saying very much so with uh, Doom. Now, oh. the stone Martin Weasel's got him. <laughs> We've been having some technical issues this morning. Is one of the reasons we had some some uh, we had a late start. Hang on, stand by, folks. We're we're gonna we're gonna see if we can get it back. Um, that. I had a feeling that was going to happen because uh, because we lost his picture. So stand by. We're just going to hang hang here for a second because he was making an excellent point. There he is. He's Did you back. Lose me? Did I lose you? What was that? Uh, I, the gods. I, the gods decided I should not. <laughs> you know, the Benny Gizzard, right? That decided I should not talk about Dune in a negative way. Right. I'm simply talking about it because <laughs> to to mirror back. That, to me, if you look at the novel itself, which is not perfect, it's a historical fiction novel. It's told in a certain way. The film is so 2022 in a derivative way. And it's like, I don't know, in terms of bottom line and box office, yeah, you need to speak to the people and the skewing it younger is a good idea. But again, you can do both. It's not an either or. You could capture... Uh, I'm going to alienate so many people. Ring <laughs> of power, right? Right. Ring of power. I'm watching one episode and I'm going, where is the gravitas, the charisma of the actors? 
the sense of the evocation of time and space in a single line. No, it was TV. <laughs> a TV version of it. And I, to me, I just, I, I just can't. And once I liked, you know, the Jackson movies, it would be very difficult for me to, to like the TV series. And at the same time, the people who made for a billion dollars the Amazon TV series um, obviously have reasons for doing what they do. Yeah. And if it works, hey, it works. A lot of people don't think it works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Actually, I don't want to feel too alone. Oh, in no. My okay. So there's there's a number of people on YouTube who are in that camp where the Rings of Power is such a slog and a, oh. and a, and a terrible, <laughs> a terrible travesty and a betrayal of everything Tolkien. I mean, there, there's a whole, there's a whole camp out there that's, that's in there. Just I didn't know that. I'm, you, you've made me feel good. I love you dearly. I, well, I'm happy to give you some validation there, Bruce. Thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. The book is uh, Stealing God and Other Stories. Where can people find this? I'm assuming it's on Amazon and where else? Yeah, it's on Amazon and actually quite a few, a surprising number of online booksellers too, if they would rather... Um, so a simple Google with the title will produce the other online booksellers. Okay, and the website McAllister Coaching. If any oh, of you are you. are uh, wanting to learn how to write, uh, he's he's got that available as well. He's also on Twitter under Bruce Stories. We've got these links in a little the less act, a little less active there. Actually, yes, I've been spending all my time on an, um, on a Musk uh, impersonator. Account. <laughs> well, thanks for the invite, Jason. Well, really thanks very much for ha for being on here, and uh, we'll definitely have to do this again. This was this yeah, was, would love was to do it. Lots, lots to talk about in this very wide field we're in. Absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Thank you very much for being here, everyone. Thanks for all of you in the chat, and Keely, thanks for getting that bot out of there. Uh, <laughs> we are continuing on our path to the 500th episode. December 30th right. is on the calendar. So join us for that. Coming up on Wednesday, uh, Christopher Hoffman will be here as a, a guest host, and uh, we will be talking to the musical group uh, El Electric Galaxy, Galaxy Electric, one or the other, is, is, is coming up. And then tonight, uh, we are going to be talking on the H2O podcast about the career of Kevin Conroy, so you want to check that out and uh, be with us for that. And, of course, you can connect with us on all the different social media platforms. We're not on Mastodon. We're not on Truth. But we're pretty much everywhere else. So you can find us there. And, um, yeah, that's it. That's going to do it for us. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Remember, there are four lights. Copyright 2022 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio. 